Hello, listeners, and welcome to Mondays with Mo. I'm your host, Don Kennedy, and this podcast is about the University of Central Missouri, the admissions process, and everything UCM. My guest today is Tony Lubers, Director of Student Financial Assistance at UCM. Tony, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Um, Today, we'll be talking with Tony about the FAFSA and different types of financial aid offered at UCM. Um, Tony, we hear the term FAFSA a lot in our work. Um, What does that term stand for? Well, FAFSA stands for the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, and I do want to emphasize free. There there are websites out there that will offer to charge students and parents to fill out the FAFSA for them, Uh, and I recommend that they not do that because financial aid offices, we're here to help the student, uh, and even admissions. I know a lot of admissions people help students with their FAFSAs and stuff, so... um, uh, and of course, October 1st here, well, what is that, Wednesday? Uh, mm-hmm. Wednesday or Thursday, whatever day that is, is the first day that the FAFSA will be available for 21-22. Uh, I don't recommend every student go out on October 1 and do the FAFSA. Uh, they can go out anytime in October or November. Uh, that would be fine to do it then. The only reason I say that is the last two years their website crashed on October 1st because everybody went out there on that day. So there's no hurry to do it on October 1, even though it's available. Uh, so students can get that done uh, anytime in the next month or two. Um, now, to, in order to file the FAFSA, the student and the parent, at least one parent, uh, will need to have an FSA, uh, or they call Federal Student Aid ID. Now, the ID allows the student and the parent, uh, once they get into the FAFSA, to link their uh, tax information to the IRS's website. They call it the IRS Data Retrieval. I highly recommend students and parents do that if they're able to, not everybody can, Um, but you need to have your FSA ID to be able to link those things. And I'll mention later why that's so important. You'll also need the FSA ID to sign the the FAFSA electronically. Uh, Again, the student will need an FSA ID and then at least one of the parents. Um, And then once you sign and you can submit the, the FAFSA electronically from there. Now, uh, of course, on the FAFSA, you'll be prompted to put uh, a Title IV code in there. UCM's code is 002454. Um, of course, any other schools you're looking at, it's, it's ideal to go ahead and put, put the code in there so that those schools will receive uh, your student aid report, the, the data, so that the financial aid offices can start uh, tracking your financial aid and getting you awarded. And now I would also recommend is once you've kind of ruled certain schools out, it's a good idea to notify those schools so that they will quit sending you stuff. Uh, That's always a good idea to do that. So, Uh, and of course, to get to the FAFSA, you would go to fafsa.gov. And the link, there is a link on that website too, to go ahead and do the FSA ID. Um, So you'll see that on there. Uh, One other thing I might mention too, when you go to the fafsa.gov, you will be prompted to do one of two different FAFSA school years. The current year FAFSA is still available, the 2021, uh, and I've helped a lot of students over the years at like high school nights that that started out doing the wrong year. They got about halfway through it and realized that they were in the wrong year and had to start over. So make sure when you start on the FAFSA that you're in the correct year. So for any, any high school seniors this current year, you'll want to do the 21-22 FAFSA. And of course it helps to have certain documents handy when you're ready to do the FAFSA. Uh, the social security cards are nice to have, but if you know your social security number and, and both your parents' social security numbers, date of birth, 
uh, you're going to need that information for the FAFSA. And it's very important you don't mistype that. So double check, particularly the student social security number. Uh, if the student social security number is off, that's, that's how the Department of Ed indexes these FAFSAs when they get them into the central processor. They, they index it by the student social. So if it's wrong, it, it kind of throws everything, it delays a lot of things. Um, and of course, if the parent social is, if anything is incorrect, of course, you can partner with, a, with the financial aid office with us and we'll be glad to help with that. It helps too to have the federal income tax uh, information handy for 2019 uh, if you're doing the 21-22 FAFSA. Um, again, if you're, if you're able to link the, the tax info uh, on the IRS data retrieval process, then of course you wouldn't need the tax return info, uh, but you'll need like uh, W-2s and things like that that will not be linked. So you wanna make sure and, and have a lot of that stuff handy. It helps to have statements, bank statements, uh, investments, things like that. Uh, and one common, uh, common error that, that I see a lot with, with students uh, and parents is are a lot of questions they ask are, do I put the value of our home on the, when it asks for asset information? If it's your primary residence, you do not. You leave that off. Now, however, if you have rentals, a second home or a vacation home, you would, of course, include the net value of that, which would be the, the value minus whatever you owe on it, the mortgage, that sort of thing. Uh, another question would be, I get a lot of these from parents, uh, do I include my 401k or any retirement on the assets? On the FAFSA and no you would leave those off as well so uh, you, you definitely don't want to include that information because those things are not earmarked for for college expenses uh, so those are things you want to think about I do want to mention one other thing we, we do have a lot of students where the parents are divorced um, and so uh, but in 2019 they may have been married and filed together what we tell students then is to go ahead and let's say, for example, they're living with mom now. Mom is providing more than half the support. They, what they would do is they would take dad's information off of the 2019 um, and put that information on the FAFSA. They would subtract it off of the adjusted gross uh, and then we would take a percentage for the tax paid. Uh, and I only mention that, it sounds very complicating, but if you run into problems, contact our office and we'll be glad to walk, walk you through that. Through that process, Tony, what are uh, some common errors that you see? You've been doing this a little while. What are some common errors you see that people make when filling out the FAFSA? Well, so there we see a lot of different types of errors. The most common probably are, are date, date of birth for the student or the parents mistyped. Uh, a lot of times, Social Security number, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is mistyped, uh, or numbers are transposed. Things of that nature that happens fairly frequently. Um, so it's really important that you proofread uh, those, particularly those data points. Um, tax, uh, tax info that's input incorrectly, numbers. I've seen um, more than my fair share of FAFSAs has come in where the student and the parent made the exact same amount of money, which uh, that's obviously can't be correct. A student making 100,000 and the parent making 100,000, that's clearly an error, but it's just stuff like that. So it, it's just really important to just review the information uh, and because when errors are made, it does delay processing of financial aid because we have to make sure uh, the information on the student aid report, which is what's generated from the FAFSA, we have to make sure that information is correct uh, and, of course, conforms to all Department of Edu Education regulations and all that good stuff. We, we don't intentionally try and, and stonewall a student from getting financial aid. We're here to break down those walls. 
um, but uh, we, we still have a few that we have to conform to with the Department of Ed. Um, so I'm trying to think if there's any other uh, errors. You, you get a fair amount. I mean, when you have 125 questions, you're, you're bound to get some issues. Uh, a lot of things that'll delay financial aid too is if the parents have not filed taxes yet. That that makes us, that puts the student dead in the water. We can't we can't proceed any further if taxes have not been filed uh, for the tax year in question. So for, the, for this time, it would be 2019. So it's very important the parents uh, and or the student file their taxes for that year if they were required to. Uh, if they haven't, it'll it'll really hurt us. Um, when we so when you submit your FAFSA to the website, it goes to what's called the CPS or Central Processing System. They then turn around and, and generate what's called a student aid report. Uh, we receive a version of that, um, and it's it's basically all of the information that's mentioned on the FAFSA uh, generated in like a summary report uh, that's called a student aid report. And on that, there is an EFC that is calculated. It's called Expected Family Contribution. I've had a lot of parents over the years who have an EFC of 50,000 and they, they get a bit angry because they're like, uh, surely they don't expect me to pay $50,000 because it is an expected family contribution. Well, I reassure them, I tell them, no, it's not, it's not, <laughs> the, the name is misleading. Uh, the EFC is strictly an index number that the financial aid office uses to determine a student's need. So, uh, and it's a simple formula, but it's, I'm, I'm trying to break it down real simple, but the financial aid office is asked to come up with a, a budget for, for a typical college student attending UCM. And of course the budget will, will vary depending on if the student will be living on campus or off campus. So we take average amounts of what it would cost for a student to live off campus or on campus. Uh, we include books and supplies, we include transportation, miscellaneous, so it's not, it's, it's direct cost to UCM and indirect costs, whatever the total amount it would be for a student to attend UCM for a year. Uh, and every school does it this way, they're required to do it this way. So for example, we could come up with a budget of 20,000 for a student. Now the student needs to remember that's not just the tuition of fees, that would be all related costs uh, with, to, to attend UCM. And again, this is just for an example. Uh, and let's say their EFC is uh, 16,000, for example. You have a high EFC. Well, then they're getting the 4,500 red and black. We, we subtract the 16,000 out of the 20. The student has 4,000 in need. And if they're getting the red and black, well, that, that took care of all their needs. So that particular student would not have any need. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, the student would not be eligible for SEOG, would not be eligible for federal work study, which we'll talk about later. Uh, there's a lot of need-based aid that's out there that if a student doesn't show need, they cannot receive. Uh, the subsidized staff or loan is the other one, which we'll talk about shortly. So uh, ideally, you want a student with a low EFC. The lower, the better. And if, if the EFC is about 5,300 or less, they'll be able to receive a Pell Grant. And the maximum Pell Grant this current year is $6,345. Uh, we won't know what it is for 21-22 until probably January or February. Um, it's typically been going up about 150 bucks a year, so it might be close to 6,500 or 6,400. So, uh, but if a, if a student has a low EFC, so let's say this this second student has a zero EFC, uh, and they're still getting the 4,500 uh, red and black, they would have 15,500 in need. So they have plenty of need, 
that's when we would start including the 6,300 Pell Grant. So now their needs down to about 9,000. We start subtracting off any other aid the student is getting. And as long as that number is positive, the student has need and would be eligible for the subsidized loan, uh, federal work study and those things. Okay, very good. Uh, Tony, we've talked before a little bit about a process called verification. Can you kind of explain that to the listeners? Yes, verification is, is a necessary evil, apparently, in this process. Uh, it's not very popular in the financial aid industry because it's, it's essentially an audit of the student's FAFSA. So when they file their FAFSA, the, it goes to the CPS, like I mentioned earlier, the Central Processing System. And the Department of Ed will, uh, or that system, will select a student for verification. I've always heard about one in three are selected. Uh, there could be several reasons why a student would be selected. One could be that it's strictly random. Uh, a lot of times they'll, they'll just select a, a FAFSA for, for verification just because. Another one could be that some data points are not matching up on the FAFSA. And the Department of Ed says, well, we want the financial aid office to look into that further to make sure that it just wasn't an error made. Um, and of course, then that prompts us uh, to go ahead and try and clear that up. If, if there's a, a conflicting data, we have to, we have to look for conflicting information. Um, that's, that's the wording that they give us. Then the, the third and most obvious reason why a student could be selected would be the Department of Ed is suspecting fraud. Uh, like, like the student or the parent is trying to pull one over on the Department of Ed, saying that they have no income uh, or whatever. It could be any number of things. And so they go ahead and select a student, which requires the financial aid office, to go ahead and verify the info. It's not the whole FAFSA, but, but many data, data points on the FAFSA. Uh, we're required to go ahead and verify that data, which may require us to get copies of uh, tax transcripts, which have to be requested through the IRS for the tax year. Um, there's a verification form that we're, we're required to have that requires the student to um, I say require a lot <laughs> this process, um, but, the, but the student is supposed to, to mention everybody who lives in the household, if they're attending college or not, and that sort of thing. So we have to get all that information. Uh, we verify the untaxed income um, and things of that nature. So, and that's where the data retrieval comes in that I mentioned earlier. That's why that's so important. If you're able to do the data retrieval, then you don't need to go out to the IRS and request the tax transcript. Uh, you being the student, obviously, and the parents. So, so if you were able to do the data retrieval as a student, but the parents couldn't do it, uh, obviously we would need their tax transcript. We wouldn't need the students and, and vice versa. So that data retrieval will save the student a lot of steps uh, because the verification does require the student to kind of jump through a few hoops uh, for us to complete that. Okay. Tony, uh, what happens? You've talked about this process. Let's say if in October, uh, my parents and I fill all this out. Um, it gets to be, you know, August and it's time to come to school. In the meantime, something's happened. One of my parents, maybe because of uh, the COVID-19, lost their job. Maybe one of my parents passed away. Something happened. Uh, is there any kind of process to help cure that? Yes, there is. There, we, we call it a recalc or recalculation or a professional judgment. Um, when, when I started in financial aid, we called them professional judgments or PJs. It allows a student to uh, have their FAFSA updated with, with more current information in cases where, where a parent maybe was laid off uh, or died or if anybody lost income. Uh, basically, if the FAFSA information 
uh, is, has now changed currently from what was originally reported. Um, some other common reasons for um, layoffs are probably the most common, uh, particularly with this downturn with COVID. We'll see probably see a lot more recalcs from that. Um, uh, excessive medical. So uh, I've seen I've seen a lot of students uh, where a, a parent or a family member has an, a long-term illness like cancer that's costing them a lot of money um, after insurance is already paid. So a lot of times we can we can update the FAFSA and and once we verify how much the the family has paid for a certain calendar year, ideally it's the the current year, then we can go in and, and adjust the FAFSA. Uh, so we will be happy to do any kind of a recalc to update the information. It is important to mention too, we will not do a recalc if we determine it does not help the student. So if we start processing all the data uh, when a student, and this is the other important point, a student must request that recalc from us. We will not know, uh, we won't know to go ahead and do a recalc unless a student contacts us and lets us know. Uh, but we do have a form that we send them and the form kind of walks them through the process, what we would need and all that stuff. But, uh, and it's another important point too, we can't do it for a future event. So, and I've seen a lot of this, well, my dad's supposed to be laid off, uh, laid off on June 1 next year. Well, I, we can't do a recalc until it actually happens because there's a chance maybe he's not going to be or whatever. So, uh, but recalcs are really, a really neat way for us to uh, help students out that maybe didn't think they would have been eligible before. Um, so that's a good thing for that. Uh, I need to mention too real quick about selective service. Um, on, on When you guys start filling out the FAFSA, it'll ask you, have you registered for selective service? If you're a male, uh, males are required to, to register uh, and they, they say you have to do it within 30 days of your 18th birthday. If you're filling out the FAFSA and let's say you're six months away from your 18th birthday, go ahead and say, yes, register me. Uh, they will register you when, when that window of opportunity comes up. They'll register you and that's by far the easiest way to do it. Uh, I believe you, you can go out on their website and do it, but you might as well just do it on the FAFSA. You're filling the form out anyway and just say, yes, register me. Now, if you happen to be a transgender student, if you were born male, you still have to register. If you're if you're trans uh, transgendering to, from male to female, uh, if you were born male, you have to register for the selective service. So it's important to note that as well. So, okay. uh, Tony, uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago something about the federal work study. Tell us a little bit about that program and how that works, if you would. Yeah, sure. Federal work study, uh, the way it works, and I kind of went over that, that formula before, as long as a student shows need, uh, they'd be eligible for federal work study. Uh, and, and they call federal work study and SEOG both. The SEOG, I'll do a little tangent here, SEOG and federal work study are both campus-based aid. What that means is, is the Department of Ed, uh, the government, sends UCM a pot of money. So let's say, for example, we get $300,000 strictly to pay students federal work study and another 200,000 for SEOG. What SEOG is, is it's a supplemental education opportunity grant and we award it to students who have filed their FAFSA by a certain day, um, April 1, and uh, have a zero EFC. So these are your most needy students. And then we award typically $750 per student. Uh, and the reason why they call it campus-based aid is that UCM, the financial aid office, sets the rules by which a student, uh, to determine who's eligible for it. Um, 
and of course we try and be as equitable as possible within the regulations. Now as for federal work study, it, it works similarly to, to SEOG except the student doesn't have to have any, a zero EFC like SEOG to be eligible for federal work study. They can have a pretty high EFC uh, as long as they still have need, they're still eligible for it. They would need to file their FAFSA by uh, April 1. Um, they need to, uh, there, there, there are several other rules behind it, but we automatically award any student that's eligible for it. And uh, the typical amount we will award a student is 2,500 for the year. So, uh, and, and how federal work study works is it's not upfront financial aid like Pell Grant or student loans and things like that. And what I mean by that, it's not actually applied directly to the student's account uh, here at UCM once they start school. It's a job. So a student would go out to our job website, uh, employment website, uh, and they could look for student positions and then apply. And then how it happens is the student would note uh, if they're federal work study or not, or our system will catch it. And what that means is, is that I'm in financial aid, for example, I have two student workers. I'm more apt to hire a student with federal work study because my budget is so low they, they don't give me a lot of money to pay a student to work in our office and we really need them. And federal work study allows me to pay them uh, 25%. Uh, so if they're making, and for ease of, of math, I'm just gonna say, let's say the student's making 10 bucks an hour. Uh, I would only be paying them $2.50 out of my budget. The other $7.50 will be coming out of the federal work study money that I mentioned earlier, the 300,000. And so that will allow me to work the student throughout the school year rather than I don't know, 10 weeks when, when I run out of money. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, <clears throat> so federal work study is great for a lot of offices who are cash strapped to pay students. And it stretches their money a little further. Awesome. Let's take a quick break, Tony. It's easy to apply to UCM. Go to ucmo.edu slash apply. Um, we're back talking with Tony Louvers about financial aid at UCM. Uh, Tony, we've talked about uh, some different types of the, working with a FAFSA, um, the aid report, uh, federal work study. Let's talk about some types of free aid now. Sure. Now, uh, the free aid, a lot, of, a lot of this stuff, the financial aid office will determine a student's eligible. Uh, eligibility based upon their FAFSA. So when we get the FAFSA in, we start reviewing the file, we run it through our, our normal process, and then we generate an award letter. Now in that process, we'll determine a student's eligibility for the Pell Grant, for example. And I mentioned earlier, that's the Pell Grant is based strictly upon the student's EFC. So, uh, and there's a, it's, it's not a real intricate formula, but it's, it's a, basically a graph we look at. So we, we look at if a student's EFC falls within a certain range, they're eligible for X or Y dollars. So it's pretty straightforward. So we go ahead and award Pell Grant based upon their EFC. If they have a zero EFC and they, they hit all of our other criteria, they could get SEOG, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Um, we look to see also for federal work study, if they should have the need. That's not really free aid, but, but it's, it could be if the student's working, that, you know, that's additional assistance. Uh, there is uh, some state assistance, so for Missouri residents, there's uh, Access Missouri. A student has to file their FAFSA by February 1 to be eligible for that. So that's very important you at least get your FAFSA filed by then for that and then of course it helps to have your financial aid file wrapped up and things not outstanding uh, as we get into the summer 
Uh, ideally, we'd want to get the student awarded uh, definitely before June, June or July. I mean, you don't want to get into August and still not know what your financial aid's looking like. Uh, Bright Flight program is another one. If a student has a, an ACT of 31 or above, they can get additional assistance. Uh, the amounts, of course, uh, can vary depending on the availability of funding uh, from the Missouri legislature, things like that. So those are Bright Flight and Access Missouri are statutory, um, but the legislature kind of dictates how much that money is. Um, so, um, so if that money, if, if you're eligible for X or Y amount and it gets cut for some reason or other, it's not UCM doing it or the financial aid office, it's because uh, the, the state of Missouri didn't have the funding to, to fund it statewide and had to cut. And the only reason I mention that is Bright Flight was cut this last year or this current year uh, by $1,200 per student. And that, that hurt not only us, but the students most of all. And uh, they didn't understand, and I, I totally understand that. Um, but, but, when, but when taxes aren't coming in like they're expecting, it kind of hurts budgets all the way around. And so that cuts into uh, programs. So. Um, but just know that you've got the, the state eligibility for those programs. Uh, we also have a foundation uh, scholarship um, program. Students can go into the, what we call the scholarship finder and they can apply. Um, and I would, I would encourage all students to go ahead and apply now. There is a February 1 deadline for most of our scholarships through the foundation. And what those are, are scholarships uh, generated from our alumni. Uh, they've, they've, uh, been gracious enough to donate some of their money back once they've kind of gotten out and been successful and and donated money to the foundation to to help our current generation of students uh, succeed graduate and help them pay their bills so I, I encourage all students to uh, to create a profile on that finder so we can get them some more money that way something I wanted to mention Tony on that the scholarship finder is that is something a student does each year while they're here so between those dates of August 1 and February 1 while you're a freshman sophomore junior uh, you do apply for the next year so yeah and I, I want to mention too when they when they initially go in and, and uh, to, to create their profile that's probably the hardest work they'll go in and create the, the initial profile uh, they can do a uh, an essay there they're not required to but a lot of scholarships ask them to do an essay but then each year after that, they only need to go in and update the profile. So it's not like they're recreating the profile. So, so that's important too, because if you've got something new or you've, you've gotten an award uh, as a sophomore or whatever, you'll definitely want to mention that in your profile. Anything that's going to beef it up and make you look more desirable, you definitely want to include that on your profile. We'll take a quick break here. If you want to come in on a campus visit, Go to ucmo.edu slash visit to sign up for a personalized campus or visit a, take a virtual campus visit. We're back talking with Tony Lubers about financial aid at UCM. Uh, in this segment, we'll be talking about loans. Uh, Tony, what are the different type of loans students can get to assist in paying for their education? Okay, loans. Uh, yeah, good times. Of course, loans are always a concern uh, nationwide as, as uh, student borrowing is topped one, was it 1.5 trillion. Uh, we always encourage students to, uh, to limit their borrowing, but if they need to do loans to pay their bill, obviously that's, that's the only option. Um, so it's, it's important to just throw that caveat out there. Uh, I was one of those students that went through college, um, not used to having a lot of money, and I took out the maximum. 
and here I'm 22 years separated from school and I'm still paying on my loans. So I could have been a little smarter about it, but uh, so it's, it's just real easy to think, well, I'll go ahead and borrow the maximum even though I don't need it. So I try and tell students, really borrow only what you need. So with that being said, uh, when a student files a FAFSA and we, we award them, we automatically award them uh, the federal direct student loan, Stafford loan. Uh, there are two types. There's a subsidized Stafford loan and an unsubsidized Stafford loan. Uh, the subsidized Stafford loan is basically what it says. It's subsidized by the taxpayer, which means the student is getting their, their interest paid for while they're in college, plus the six-month grace period after they uh, separate. Uh, we hope that means graduate, but if a student has to withdraw or, or they, they attend their first year of school and need to step out for a few months and come back, uh, they have six months where they don't start making payments. Um, but uh, the, during that six month period, interest is not accruing on those loans. Now the unsubsidized loan, uh, yes, interest is accruing. And uh, while the student is in school, once it's, once it's dispersed, uh, interest starts accruing. Now fortunately, the interest rate's pretty low. It's about two, two and three quarter percent. Uh, it's about 5% for a plus loan. So it's, it's looking pretty good and I'll talk about plus loan here in a second. So, uh, but students are automatically eligible for the direct loan. The, and the amounts are set also based on how far along at school they are. So for, if we're talking strictly about uh, freshmen's, freshman students, um, they're eligible for 3,500 uh, of a subsidized or unsubsidized loan, kind of going back to that formula I was talking about earlier. If they have the need, they're eligible for the 3,500 subsidized loan. And then they get an additional 2,000 unsubsidized. So a freshman can borrow up to 5,500. Uh, sophomores, uh, it's 4,500 plus 2,000. And then juniors and seniors, about 60 hours or more, is 5,500 plus 2,000. So, uh, so it goes up each year, which helps. But, but the idea behind that is, is it's encouraging the student to finish. Uh, our, our goal in financial aid is to help a student uh, to complete their degree in as short amount of time as possible with as little debt as possible. Uh, that's, that's really the bottom line. And we, we care about the student's success and we'll do everything within our power to ensure that happens. Now, uh, once you apply your direct loans, your Pell Grant, all your other aid, and you still owe, the direct PLUS loan is an option. PLUS uh, is an acronym, Parent Loan for Undergraduate Students. So what that means is, is a PLUS, uh, a parent can go out and apply on the studentloans.gov website um, and now the parent will need their own FSA ID, so I need to make sure that that's clear. So let's say mom signed the FAFSA. Uh, mom obviously has her FSA ID, but then dad wants to do the PLUS loan. Well, dad can't use mom's FSA ID. He will need his own to do a PLUS loan. So whichever parent is doing a parent loan or even applying for a parent loan will need to have an FSA ID that's unique to them. Um, now there's two ways you can go with a PLUS loan. Uh, the parent can go out to that website and they can do just a credit check. So they're just applying to see if they'll be approved. They're not actually applying for the loan. Um, and we can do the credit check in our office as well. So uh, if you guys happen to be on campus, now the credit check's good for normally about six months. So if, so if you happen to be coming in for a, a campus visit or you're going to be on campus and you want to do a PLUS credit check, I would recommend that, that we do it maybe late spring so that if we get the denial, we can go ahead and award. Uh, and that's, that's why I was talking about two routes. 
so let's say the parent uh, applies for the PLUS loan for next year. Uh, this parent gets denied. What that means is we can award the, the freshman student an additional 4000 in student loan. It's unsubsidized. So those, those amounts I gave earlier, so a freshman coming in could get the 3500 sub or unsub, the 2000 unsub plus 4000 more. Uh, and basically what that means is the student would be treated as independent for that year for loan purposes. Um, and they would get the additional student loan, which will help. Uh, freshman and sophomore, it's the same amount. So on a plus denial, they get additional 4000 And then juniors and seniors, it's an additional 5000 So, uh, So it really increases the buying power that a student can have, but it is loans. So that'll be something to keep in mind. Now, on the other hand, if a parent wants to get approved, uh, they can certainly do the credit check, uh, but they can also go ahead and apply, and they can do it from that website. So they can apply. We will get the file electronically saying that the, the parent was either approved or denied, and uh, then we'll go ahead and process a PLUS loan for whatever amount they're wanting. Um, and a lot of times we don't know if the parent, if the parent hasn't talked to us or, or you in admissions, we don't know if they're doing a PLUS loan or not. So if we get a file in, and let's say it was approved, uh, we're going to reach out to the parent and just ask, were you just trying for the denial and got approved, or do you really want the loan? Uh, because a lot of times we don't know. And uh, another good way to let us know if you're really wanting the loan, uh, you parents, is to go do the master promissory note, because that's your promise to, to pay and all that stuff. And that's also on that same website. So those are all things that, that you'll want to make sure you do. Uh, you'll have to complete the prom note. And I do need to mention, too, for students, uh, if, if they're going to do the direct loans, they would accept them in MyCentral uh, once they have a MyCentral account set up, which, which is our UCM portal for students. Then they would also, the students will also need to go into that same website, the studentloans.gov. Um, I can't think of the name of the, the actual website. It used to be studentloans.gov. Uh, but if you type that into the computer, it takes you to the right website. Uh, they've just renamed it, and it's kind of a catch-all. Department of Ed, but it'll, it'll get you there. Uh, but then the student will log in using their FSA ID uh, for their student loans because they'll need to complete entrance counseling. Um, and then, of course, the student has to do a master promissory note as well for their sub subsidized, unsubsidized staff or loans. So, so the student's got a couple extra steps too. Uh, and those things will be noted on the student's bill too. If they're missing either of those things, uh, there'll be a little asterisk saying, hey, you've got loans out there that are ready to go, but we're missing something, okay. you know? And if, if you have questions or you don't remember uh, this podcast or something, please reach out to uh, the financial aid office. We'll be glad to walk you through that process. Okay. Tony, uh, I'm a student. I'm needing to borrow $2,500 through one of these loans. Do I borrow that exact amount to get $2,500? Well, that's, that's a really good question. Um, if you're if you're trying to borrow, and I see this a lot with the plus loan, but this this could certainly apply for student loans as well. So let's say you you uh, uh, in that scenario, let's say you still owe twenty five hundred dollars for the fall. Uh, now, obviously, you'd want to double it because when you borrow, you're doing it for the year. So let's let's say your spring, you you would expect to owe twenty five hundred as well. So in this scenario, well, let's say the parent wants to borrow five thousand dollars to cover that remaining balance. Well, unfortunately, there is what's called an origination fee. It's, it's sitting currently at about four and a quarter percent. So when a parent borrows uh, $5,000, they need to remember that 4.23% of that 
is going to be taken off by the Department of Ed. And so, um, and I can't do the math in my head, but uh, we're talking uh, 4%, so it'd be a little over $100, uh, well, for the fall. So it'd be, it'd be 200 some bucks. So then that would mean the parent would still owe that amount with UCM because because um, they're only borrowing uh, $5,000 or again, $2,500 a semester. Once that origination fee ta uh, is taken off by the Department of Education, uh, let's say $2,375 is what actually comes in as a net amount, then the parent still owes $125. Mm -hmm. That can infuriate a lot of people when they don't know. So I try and tell uh, parents or students if they're trying to borrow an exact amount. Uh, now, obviously, the origination fee on the sub and unsub, it's a little over 1%. It's a little more uh, workable. But on a plus loan being four and a quarter percent, that can be pretty dicey. <coughs> Excuse me. So, so I tell parents just allow for a four and a quarter percent and increase whatever you're going to borrow by that amount. So in this scenario, I would recommend a parent borrow $2,750 instead of $2,500. Uh, you're going to get a little extra, but I'd rather the parent get a little bit of money come, coming back to them as opposed to them still owing a uh, hundred or two hundred bucks after they've just paid twenty five hundred. Sure. Uh, that can be a bit infuriating. So I understand sure. the feeling behind that. So Tony, uh, I've been offered these loans, but I'm not sure if I want to take them. Do I have to take them right away? Can I wait till later to accept them? Um, that, that's a good question. I get this a lot. Um, you, we, when we send out the award letter and the notification to students, uh, the loans are in offered status. The students are, are not obligated to accept them. They can leave them in offered status um, or they can accept a lesser amount. Uh, what we're doing is, uh, again, that word required, we're required to award the student a maximum that they're eligible for for everything. So let's say you don't need the full 3,500 subsidized loan and you only need a thousand of it then you, you could type in uh, $1,000 and then accept, and we'll process it only for $1,000. Um, and then uh, we'll decline the other 2,500. Now, it's important to know too that, uh, let's say something happens. You, you need another textbook that's $400, whatever. Um, and you don't have that, and you wanna come back and borrow a little more, you can certainly do that. So students would just need to notify our office what we will do is go back out and reoffer that remaining 2500 and then you can accept however much you need to pay for that additional cost. So you have that eligibility as long as you're enrolled. So let's say, for example, you're enrolled fall only, you don't plan to come back in January, and you've still got a balance, but it's December 20th and the semester ended, we can't do anything because you're no longer enrolled at UCM. But if you're planning on coming back in the spring, then obviously we can disperse it in January. Uh, that's the real key with loans. As long as you haven't borrowed your annual limit, uh, and as long as you're still enrolled at least half time, which is six credit hours, uh, we'll be able to process a loan for you um, up, to, up to those amounts. Tony, you've given us some excellent information here today. Um, are there any other areas or topics you feel like we need to touch on? I, I think probably the key thing, um, well, I need to mention one other thing too. We have the Missouri Scholarship and Loan Foundation. They also have, uh, they serve, they serve every, every college and university in the state. They have a lot of scholarships available. They have the access, uh, access extra scholarship. 
um, there, we have an emergency grant program. So let's say a student is here uh, and then they've, they've fallen into an emergency type situation where they need some additional assistance. It's a director's choice uh, grant, which means it's, it's up to me to, to process that. But if a student falls on hard times, you definitely need to come see me and we can work on, on getting you up to $1,500 to help you. Uh, but it's, it's gotta be classified as an emergency. Uh, but those usually work pretty well. There's also a Mo Felt loan. It's a Missouri Family Education Loan Program through the Scholarship and Loan Foundation. Um, and it, it allows for minimal monthly payments uh, for a student. They, they can do a $5, they call it a $5 keep in touch monthly payment. Uh, so as long as a student's making a minimum of $5 a month payment, uh, once they're in repayment, then they're, they're good, their account's good and they can borrow up to $5,000 on that. That's, it's 0% interest, no fees, but it is credit based. And a lot of students will need a parent to co-sign. But it's a really good loan, the MoFelt is. Uh, and there's a process behind that. So if students are eligible for that, definitely reach out to us. And of course, the Scholarship and Loan Foundation has other uh, scholarships and things, but they're generally more for continuing students. But that's certainly another option that we want students to remember. Uh, I think one final thought that I'd want to put out there, uh, please keep in mind the financial aid office is here for you, the student. Uh, if you have any questions, even if you plan on not coming to UCM, let's say you're looking at somewhere else, we are here to help you whether you come to UCM or not. We, we want you to succeed as a student. Uh, obviously, uh, I'm going to state the obvious. We want you to come to UCM, obviously. Uh, we want you to be a, a mule here with us. And, and to succeed with us. But if you decide we're not a fit or whatever, uh, we are still here for you to help you with your FAFSA or your financial aid. Uh, we would be glad to help you out. Uh, that's, that's been a longstanding tradition here uh, to help students regardless of where they go uh, because we want them to know that we're here for them. Excellent. Tony, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Uh, I wanna take a minute to remind our listeners of some upcoming dates. Uh, you have an opportunity to learn more about UCM during our virtual Discover Central Week, which is October 26th through 29th. Um, throughout the week, you will have many sessions to choose from to learn more about academics, student life, student support, financial aid, and much more. Sign up at ucmo.edu visit and search for Discover Central Week. Also, be sure to subscribe to Mondays with Mo on whatever platform you listen on. Please join us next time as we talk with Bree Heath-Scott and Alex Kent about what it was like being an NCAA student athlete.